Welcome back to um, uh, week two of Restless Pilgrims. Um, for those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, my name is Chad, as Frank mentioned, and the title of this class is Restless Pilgrims, and essentially what we're doing in this class is looking at our lives in the context of being on a journey. If it's true what Eugene Peterson says in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, that there's two helpful designations for understanding the Christian life, one being disciple that we're quite familiar with, the second being pilgrim, meaning that we're spending our lives on a journey going someplace, then it's helpful, it's critical for us to understand what are the implications of that. And so that's what this class is about, is it, what does it mean that we're living our lives on a journey as Christians? What can we expect? And so in utilizing the metaphor of the pilgrim, we're really doing three things in this class. The first is that we're uh, looking at a rediscovery of our roots, where we came from as, uh, as believers. If there, was a, if there is a path that's been walked upon uh, since the inception of our faith, then what can we learn from characters in Scripture, characters in history, that can help inform our own lives, our own faith? The second part of this is if it's true that we are on a journey— then journeys have a particular terrain. There are certain features that you'll find, whether you're walking the pilgrimage of the Camino Santiago in the south of France through Spain, um, or whether you're hiking up Camelback Mountain. You know that there are certain aspects of terrain that you can expect, and that is true for us as believers, that there are aspects of the terrain and walking this journey that folks like Abraham to C.S. Lewis to ourselves will experience in great similarity. And the third aspect of this class is, what does it mean that we're, we're ultimately headed somewhere, that we have a final destination and the implications of that? So just a brief recap of what we talked about last week. We looked at that we're called to be on journey as pilgrims, and that we're moving from being spiritual tourists, in a sense, where we're just looking at life, to being active and on the journey. We're traveling along the way. The two examples that we use to look at in terms of case studies, the first being Abraham, that he was someone who was called out of his home geographically, but more importantly, he was called spiritually to leave his home of Ur, and that Abraham lived life dominated by this fear of the circle, that all of life was understood simply as this, is that you're born, you live, and you die. And God was calling him to leave that mentality, and that mentality, as Thomas Cahill points out in his book, The Gift of the Jews, is the single most revolutionary act in all of human history, that he was leaving behind a worldview and a mentality that essentially said the past doesn't really matter, it's not that critical, the future is somewhat important. He was leaving that behind to follow a God who was going to work in history, moving forward in a towards a destination. And we too are called to leave the circle um, that in, in many respects is very similar to what Abraham lived in, a circle of chaos. His day was the circle of you're, you're born, you live, and you die. In our day, it's a secular sphere, secular meaning now and present, that really, if you talk to most people and you get to, the, you get to what undergirds their, their belief system, it's a lot, for a lot of people, it's essentially, this is really all that there is. And God is calling us out of that mentality every single day. And then an individual who really helped us to understand that and what it means to leave the chaos of the circle is C.S. Lewis. And in his own experiences, his own discovery, we find that being a Christian is the fullest expression of what it means to be truly human, of what it means to be fully alive. And that as we 
move closer to God on this journey, we become more and more human, we become more and more real, we become more and more fully alive. We just watched a clip from the movie The Way. The Way stars Martin Sheen. He plays Tom, an eye doctor living in Southern California who receives news that his son, Daniel, has died at the beginning stages of this pilgrimage that begins in the south of France. He decides to have Daniel's body cremated, and his journey is going to pick up where Daniel tragically died, and he's going to complete the entirety of the Camino Santiago. And along the way, he's going to spread the ashes of his son. This is the reason that he's traveling this journey. This is why he's on the journey, is to, is to continue what his son has done. And in the scene that we see here, we find, we find Tom um, somewhat energized by the first stages of his journey. It's, it's refreshing. It's beautiful to look at uh, the variety of, of scenery that he encounters, the vistas, the colors, the exotic landscape. Uh, for a guy that really hasn't left his home. This is, a, this is a, a new and empowering experience. And then he stops, and he has an encounter, one of which he'll repeat a number of times along the way, and he sees an apparition, an image of his son. He looks, and he sees the coat that his son would have worn on the Camino. He turns his back, and he looks again, and Daniel is gone. Tom is haunted by the image and the memory of his son. And it's something that plays itself out time and time again on the journey. Now, Tom is someone who, um, though he knows why he's there and what he's doing on the journey, he'll often forget uh, his real purpose of being there uh, for a variety of reasons. But that image of being haunted by the son is something that comes up time and time again for him. Tom is also, as I mentioned last week, he's joined by three traveling companions who come from different parts of the world. Each of them are struggling with something that has a severe and destructive grip on their life. Though they differ, they're also quite similar in nature. And so this is, the, this is their story. This is the nature of their journey. Each of these characters, Tom in particular, are there for a particular reason. They're there to walk this journey, the Camino Santiago, the way. And this is what their story is about. If I were to ask you this question, how would you answer if your life is marked by this journey, if your life is a, is a story lived on a journey with a beginning, a middle, and an end, with an ultimate destination and resolution, how would you answer this? And, and this is something you don't have to, to share now, just, just in thinking about, but how would you define the kind of story that you're living in? Is yours a tragic comedy? Is it an action-adventure? What's the genre of your life story as it's been written to this point? Is your life a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury? Is it a comedy? What is it? G.K. Chesterton, uh, the Christian novelist, talked about in an essay that he wrote on the importance of, of novel and literature. He makes this really interesting observation, and he talks about why he thinks that people uh, tend to gravitate more towards novels. And in our day, we, could, we, would, we would say novels and perhaps things like film and television shows. But he talks about why he thinks people gravitate towards that more than they would a book of science, perhaps. And he says this. He says that people wonder why the novel is the most popular form of literature. People wonder why it is read more than books of science, of metaphysics. The reason is very simple. It is merely that the novel is more true than they are. And then he goes on to make this statement. G.K. Chesterton, a Christian, says that romance is the deepest thing in life. What do you think he's talking about there? What do you think he means? What, what would inspire 
this kind of statement. In lieu of living life on journey, in lieu of thinking about having our own stories told being on journey, what do you think G.K. Chesterton is after here with this statement? Thoughts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we resonate to that in whatever form it shows up. Yeah, it, it speaks to us of something, of something bigger. Yeah. Other thoughts? Do you think he's off his rocker? Do you think that, that he, he's on to something, or perhaps he's, he's got a little, bo- little bonkers? Frank? I, I, I hope you do. Yeah. And of course, that's about way more than just physical nakedness. It's a tremendously uh, a transparency and authenticity that you and I will never be able to approach that in a fallen world. Yeah. Except perhaps in love. Yeah. 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 Good thoughts. He's making a, he's making an interesting statement here, a compelling statement, and it's something about the nature of how we understand, how we look at our lives. Um, and though marriage being a terrific and tremendous example, I think he's on to something broader and deeper and wider that includes marriage. Quoting another novelist, we have uh, George Eliot, who makes this statement, taking, uh, I think, taking G.K. Chesterton's statement a step further. It seems to me we can never give up longing and wishing while we are alive. Something that Bud had mentioned, that there's, there's a longing that's real that exists deep within us. Gerald May helps us out even further as to looking at the clues beneath this statement by Chesterton. There is a desire within each of us in the deep center that we call our heart, We were born with it, but it is never completely satisfied. We are often unaware of it, but it is always awake. Our true identity, our reason for being, is to be found in this desire. Chesterton talks about romance. Eliot talks about this longing. May talks about this this identity that's always awake, that never goes to sleep. What is it that they're speaking of? What is it that they're pointing to and referencing? In their book, The Sacred Romance, Brent Curtis and John Eldridge say this, In all of our hearts lies a longing for a sacred romance. It will not go away in spite of our efforts to anesthetize or ignore its song or attach it to a single person or endeavor. It is a romance couched in mystery and set deeply within us. Philosophers call this romance, this heart yearning set within us, the longing for transcendence, the desire to be a part of something larger than ourselves, to be a part of something out of the ordinary, 
that is good. And they go on to say how we're really made for two crucial elements, a longing for meaningful, purposeful adventure and intimacy, to be known and loved for who we truly are. And now we hear about, we hear about this, this idea of, and again, this, this may feel somewhat philosophical and abstract at first, and what they're talking about is transcendence. What is transcendence? Well, transcendence is essentially the intersection of the divine in our lives. And it looks like, and it reveals itself in a myriad of different ways. Initially, I think of the scene from the film Forrest Gump. And for those of you that have seen it, Forrest is, takes about a year and a half and he just decides to run. He's experienced a lot of grief in his life. And he, he runs across the U.S. several times. And one of the moments that he, that he recalls as having a great stirring in his heart is when he's running along the banks of or near the banks of this beautiful lake and there's some mountains in the background and he says this i couldn't tell where heaven stopped and the earth began he was overcome with a sense of wonder of joy his heart was stirred in such a way that um it awoke something that was deeper than his own experience than his own existence c.s lewis talked about this idea and he used the german word sensucht when he described this joyward longing that we have that reveals itself again in just a variety of ways everything from the first time that you held your child to those of you that were married and you 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 gave your vows to the person you love to perhaps the time when you played in a in a football game in your high school and you guys won the state championship against all odds or when you're on vacation and you saw the ocean and it moved and stirred in you in such a way that piece of music, that piece of literature, that movie, that painting, that experience abroad, developing a friendship for the first time, the wonder of seeing a sunset for the first time or the last time, all of these being examples of transcendence. And what exactly is happening here? Lewis says this, these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past are good images of what we desire. They are the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, News from a country we have never visited. What's happening here? The philosophers, the songs, the movies, the novels, the poets, all seem to point to this truth that God himself is romancing his creation, that God himself is in the pursuit of humanity, and that all of those moments that you've experienced that have taken your breath away, that have made you feel alive and overcome with a sense of joy that almost felt like it would break your heart, all of those are clues, and all of those are the ways that God himself is wooing humanity. Now, this is a pretty wild idea, if you think about, that beneath all of that, beneath all of those things that so grip your heart, is the song, is the, is the tune of a song we've never heard, uh, the details of a country we have not yet visited. And when you think about your life story, and you think about your life story, and what kind of story do you live under, how would you feel if someone were to characterize your life and its story as a love story and that your life story is written amidst the greatest love story ever told, that the pages of Scripture, beginning with song, filled with song, the first words out of a human being's mouth, she is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, poetry, the Jews themselves, as they traveled yearly to Jerusalem and they made pilgrimage, they would sing songs of praise and declaration to God. David himself, penning the first words in history, revealing the interior life of a person, songs of adoration, songs of, 
heart-wrenching lament, all in direction and affection towards the one he loved. Even Christ himself, when he was crucified, quoting poetry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A psalm that he was referencing. This story is bathed in a deep, passionate, holy love that God has for humanity and for his people. And that our lives, if we're on journey, our lives are ultimately not marked solely by tragic comedy, maybe action and adventure, but larger than that, that we are caught up in the greatest love story ever told and that the events of your life, that the way that God has been revealing himself to you, pursuing you, has been with the heart of love. Now, when you hear this, this may sound for some of us perhaps sappy. This may feel somewhat distant or removed uh, for any number of reasons, maybe our own experiences of love or lack thereof. And to think of God as the ultimate lover in pursuit of humanity may not feel practical at all. And in fact, there may be something inside each of you that is somewhat wrestling or fighting that idea. Is that, is that really God? Is that really who he is? Well, we see God in his interaction with humanity, particularly with the nation of Israel, and the language that's used is one of passionate, holy pursuit. Everything from how he relates to his people with language spoken of not just simply bad behavior, sin management, but adultery. He refers to his people as as pursuing other idols in terms of passionate love. How can we know this, though? I mean, how can, how can we, we believe this to be true, that God actually is writing a love story for each of us, for his church, for his people, that we're all caught up in the midst of that, and that the waking days of our lives are being spent being pursued in love? How can we know this for sure? We'll take a, we'll take a five-minute break and come back and talk more about that. Welcome back for our, uh, our third part this evening. Um, we're looking at the, the, the story of the Exodus and its significance in Scripture. Uh, but now we're going to look at its, its significance in understanding our own lives and perhaps what God may be up to as he writes our stories of love. Why was it so hard for Israel to, to move into the promised land, to follow God, to experience the, the, the kind of liberation that God longed for them, to experience that kind of freedom? I remember when I was a kid and I first saw uh, the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston in that scene when Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and the Israelites are down and they're having almost like a house party on the side of the mountain. They make a calf out of their teeth. It was just, I couldn't believe it. I thought these guys are completely stupid. Why would they, why would they do this? Essentially after what just happened, how could they be so naive? How could they be so dumb and rebellious? And really, how could be, they be so desperate? I mean, they didn't even wait about five minutes before they begin fashioning uh, this idol in a cow of all things. This is what they were going to, to worship. Uh, and, and we look at the story of the Israelites, and it's awful, often one of those like head smackers of what were these guys thinking? I mean, time and time again, one stupid, idiotic, rebellious decision after the other, and the cycle played itself over and over and over. And have you ever thought, you know, if I could see God, if I could physically see him manifest himself, and I just knew what to do, and they had that. They had the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. You go this far, okay, we go this far. And yet time and time and time again, they kept falling back into the same pattern. Uh, They couldn't seem to leave Egypt behind. Physically, they had left, but these old habits, these practices were so dug down deep that they just couldn't seem to move forward. What was going on? 
Are they any different than us? Would we have done any differently if we were in their situation? After all these promises and all that they had experienced, all the wonder and miracles, they just kept repeating the cycle over and over and over again. This is an interesting statement um, by a Russian theologian. He says this, that humanity is in a state of servitude. We frequently do not notice that we are slaves, and sometimes we love it. But humanity also aspires to be set free. It would be a mistake to think that the average person loves freedom. A still greater mistake would be to suppose that freedom is an easy thing. Freedom is a difficult thing. And we think again about the reality of slavery and that looking at lives of those individuals who who live in forms of physical slavery, it's exceedingly difficult for us to put ourselves in their shoes. But what if I were to propose to you that each of you, each of us, were born into slavery? Each of us have experienced enslavement to varying degrees over the course of our lives, and the people that we know and love that surround us, each of them are and have experienced enslavement for a variety of means. Now, that could be somewhat of an an accessible concept or reality for others that may be difficult to obtain. Let me me offer you an interesting example of what this looks like for someone in the West. We prize our freedom. In fact, personal choice and, and being able to express our own idea of what we think freedom means is something that we hold very near and dear to us. In traditional cultures, as Tim Keller will tell you, traditional cultures, it was about the family and the family unit. But living in the West, in modernity, what we find here is that it's personal choice. Don't tell me how to live. I want to live however I want to live. I love whoever I want to love, work wherever I want to work, be educated wherever I want to be educated. Freedom seems to be, or at least personal choice seems to be, Uh, the foundational building block of life lived in the West. In 2013, a a journalist for ESPN wrote an article called Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And he talks about in this article how Michael Jordan, when he he went to receive the award for um, being inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame, gave a speech that surprised a lot of people. Because, as this journalist points out, a lot of people expected Jordan to behave like memorabilia. You know those baseball cards that you collect, and they're sitting in your closet, and you're glad that you have them? They've, they've served their purpose, perhaps, when you were a kid and you showed others, or maybe they're accumulating wealth for you, and you're going to sell them to a card shop or whatnot. But when all is said and done, you want to put that back in your closet. Well, that's kind of what people thought of Michael Jordan. He needs to retire and kind of go into retirement Uh, without making a lot of noise. But the speech that he gave, as this journalist points out, seemed to indicate that there was a lot happening within this person who didn't want to go quietly into the night. So he spent a week with Michael Jordan around his 50th birthday, and they talked about all the things that Michael was experiencing in his life, everything from uh, his father tragically being murdered and and what the effect that that's had on him, uh, running a basketball team, and really trying to live out a desire of being a competitor as an athlete. But as a 50-year-old, what does that even look like? So he quotes Michael Jordan. He talks about how in Jordan there was this intense need to compete. He says this, There's no way to measure these things, but there's a strong case to be made that Jordan is the most intense competitor on the planet. I remember as a kid looking up to guys like Michael Jordan. In fact, for me, one one of my heroes was Magic Johnson. I remember seeing Michael Jordan play and it was otherworldly. 
And for those of us that remember watching that kind of athlete play, it was like he came from another planet. It was exciting. Um, Jordan goes on to talk about, as he quotes, in being an intense competitor. I can't help myself, he says. It's an addiction. You ask for the special power to achieve these heights, and now you got it, and you want to give it back, but you can't. If I could, then I could breathe. The journalist goes on to say this. He says, Michael's self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? Michael Jordan goes on to talk about, he says, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? Sitting behind his desk, his cell phone buzzes with trade offers. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Then the author, and I don't know where he was coming from when he made this statement, talks about a unique experience of life that we all have, but for someone like a Michael Jordan, it seems to take on more of a larger-than-life concept. Aging means losing things, and not just eyesight and flexibility. It means watching the accomplishments of your youth be diminished, maybe in your own eyes, through perspective, maybe in the eyes of others through cultural amnesia. Most people live anonymous lives, and when they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. They're forgotten, some more slowly than others, but eventually it happens virtually to everyone. Yet for the few people in each generation who reach the very pinnacle of fame and achievement, a mirage flickers, immortality. What does Michael Michael Jordan's story reveal? What is is this this expose into the life of this great athlete who's experienced a kind of success that few people ever will? The journalist is right. Most of us, we live and we die, and our achievements may be known by a few, but there's a few in each generation where they're remembered. What does his story reveal to us? And what does it say to us about our own stories? Well, simply this, that each of us really aren't that different than Michael Jordan. He just experiences a kind of success that most of us never really will. He experienced the kind of heights that most of us won't. But we're compelled to look inside the life of somebody like that because perhaps we think, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't be that different. I wouldn't certainly be like the Israelites. And I certainly wouldn't be like someone like Michael Jordan. I could control myself. What the Exodus journey reveals for each of us as its pattern as we travel along the way is this, is that we need the Exodus journey because ultimately we need a liberator, a savior, that God was calling the, he was calling the Israelites out of Egypt to experience freedom, but their own struggles, their own attachments, their own idolatries made this intensely difficult. Now, the, the first commandment that God gives his people after Moses comes down from the mountains is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Why was this so crucial? Why would God make this the first commandment? He knew the problems that the Israelites would run into time and time again of, of making golden calves and going after other gods. But for God, idolatry was the most serious offense that one could have in terms of their relationship with the Lord and with each other. But why the first? Why so important? Well, simply put, if God has a design for being human, and if being human is what it means to be a Christian, then to be a human being is to be free. And to be free is to be free of all idols. And if we pursue anything but God, we become enslaved. We become attached. Now, when we hear the word idolatry, that, that might seem like a, a a word that, that would have worked in a, in a culture like that, where there were multiple gods, as in the case of Egypt, there was a pantheon of gods, but we certainly don't 
build temples of stone and wood and, and worship to a bird or to um, a crocodile. We certainly don't have that kind of problem. And when God tells us, you shall have no other gods before me, I know for me personally, when I heard that commandment for the first time, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't really relate. I, that didn't quite compute or I didn't quite connect with that. Yeah, I knew that was important. We weren't supposed to do that. But what does that even mean in the first place? What does idolatry even look like? Gerald May, a psychiatrist, offers a very fascinating insight into this. Gerald May was someone who began his practice several decades ago, and he wanted to work and began working with people struggling with significant substance abuse. And what he found is in the variety of approaches out there that nothing seemed to be working. It was the same technique over and over again. And then he got wind of a group that were working with alcoholics, and they, uh, they believe that the first step in recovery is the admission that you can't do it yourself, that there is a submission to a higher authority. And he was really fascinated that he started to see change with this group of people and their approach to overcoming addiction. He goes on to make uh, a number of interesting statements uh, in his book, Addiction Addiction and Grace. And one of the first things that he talks about in his own story, in his own own life, is this. He says, you know, I realized that I was not in control of my life. I needed as much of God's grace as any of my patients did. And then he goes on to make a very provocative statement. And looking at the role of addiction and, and, and studying people who struggled with substance abuse, He says this, I am not being flippant when I say that all of us suffer from addiction, nor am I reducing the meaning of addiction. I mean, in all truth, that the psychological, neurological, and spiritual dynamics of full-fledged addiction are actively at work within every human being. The same processes that are responsible for addiction to alcohol and narcotics are also responsible for addiction to ideas, work, relationships, powers, moods, fantasies, and an endless variety of other things. We are all addicts in every sense of the word. Moreover, our addictions are our own worst enemies. They enslave us with chains that are of our own making, and yet, that paradoxically, are virtually beyond our control. Addiction makes idolaters of us all. It's a pretty compelling statement from someone who's studied uh, the role of addiction in people's lives, and May talks about in his book, Addiction and Grace, how addiction works in the mind and the body and the spirit. And what he says is what we do is we attach ourselves to to things and we make those things more important than they ought to be in our lives. He uses the word, uh, he talks about the word attaché, the French word, meaning we nail ourselves to things that we shouldn't and we become enslaved to the things that we don't want to. It's reminiscent of when Paul says in the New Testament, I, I do the things that I, I don't want to do. It's the Egyptians talking about, oh, if we could just have, go back to Egypt and have our, have our leaks. Um, I remember one of the first times I was confronted with addiction uh, in my own life. Um, and, and it was with someone who I loved dearly. A grandfather of mine uh, was an alcoholic. And I remember sitting in the doctor's, the doctor's office who was treating my grandfather and I asked him, what can we do to fix Grandpa? What, what can we do to get him on, on the right course? And he said, what you need to understand is that your grandfather looks at alcohol as a relationship. And in fact, he looks at alcohol as his primary relationship. Well, I was completely insulted. Why would, why would, gran, why would Grandpa choose 
this drink over me. I mean, there, it's just logical. Why would you choose that? And what May is saying here is that all of us do that. All of us do that. The challenge is, the interesting thing is that we all have addictions, and some of our addictions are just that much more socially acceptable than other addictions. If you want to understand idolatry, you have to understand addiction, meaning that we all struggle with addictions, and as believers, when we come to know the Lord, we are, in a sense, living a life of recovery. Now, some of you might now, right now might be really struggling with this idea because of your own experience with addiction. Perhaps you yourself have undergone that, or you know people closely that have gone through that, and it's created havoc and destruction in your life. And to be thought of as somebody who's an addict or who's living a life of recovery out of something might feel condescending or insulting or a cheapened understanding of the experience of idolatry and freedom. Well, let me ask you this then. Why is it that those of us work as hard as we do? Why can't we say no to particular projects at work? Why are we so obsessed with how we look? Or, or why, why don't we care what we eat? Or why do we care too much about what we eat? Why do we feel like we have to be seen in a particular light? Why do we have to be known as being this intelligent or not intelligent enough? Why do we obsess over the fact if we miss a workout? Or why do we not work out at all? Why are we so afraid of revealing our, our deepest struggles to each other? Why do we feel like we have to dominate a conversation all the time? Or why do we not even interject into a conversation? We're starting to get uncomfortable. Why? Because we're beginning to get at the heart of the problem, which is this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not place the primary emphasis of relationship on something else other than God. The greatest, the greatest need that we have in our life is love, and that is also the greatest problem we have, too, is that we place relational emphasis, too much relational emphasis on things that were never designed to have that happen. We are all like Michael Jordan. We are all like the Israelites. We are all coming out of overcoming experiences of addiction, and we are being continually liberated from that. So what does that mean, and how does, the, how does the Exodus pattern play itself out in our lives? Well, the Israelites were called out of Egypt into the wilderness. And when you're called into the wilderness, as the Israelites were, it was uncomfortable, it was difficult, and they were constantly confronted with challenges. But more importantly than that, they were constantly confronted with the reality of themselves, and it was not pretty. So often in life, we look at our discomforts, our challenges, our difficulties, uh, our headaches is simply that. When in reality, if we take a closer look, our lives mirror the Exodus pattern, that our lives is really seen as one continual liberation after the other. But why is liberation so hard? Why is it so difficult? As Chuck DeGroat says in his book, Leaving Egypt, the people of God, the people God embraces in covenant relationship are enslaved, broken, bruised and battered. You and I, all of us in this room, have been liberated. If we know God, we've been liberated. We've been called out of our own Egypt. We've been called out of our own addictions. We've been called out of our own attachments. But any time you liberate someone, it's difficult, it's traumatic, and it's a long, enduring process. If you've ever read stories about people who were rescued out of trafficking, it's a very delicate, and difficult endeavor because of all the forces that are set against that person uh, being, uh, being kept in captivity. And so God, 
in a much greater way is at work in each of our lives doing the same thing, that those challenges, those difficulties, those obstacles that you're up against, have you ever considered that in part God is using all of that for your ongoing liberation and restoration, that each of us in this room struggle constantly with addictions that take a myriad of different forms, and that God, like the Israelites, will use those wilderness experiences of your life to bring about an ongoing liberation. Why else is it hard? Chuck DeGroat asked this question. He says, why is leaving Egypt so hard after all? Why is liberation such a difficult journey? The reality is that our enslavements are not all that bad. We're not unlike Red from the movie The Shawshank Redemption. If you've seen it, you know that the character played by Morgan Freeman has been in prison so long that he says this about the prison walls. These walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's what's so difficult about this is it's easy to point out the alcoholic. It's easier to point out the person struggling with pornography. What about the person that struggles compulsively to serve at church because they want to be seen as good? That a lot of their motivation isn't as much they love God. They just feel a sense of unhealthy guilt. If I'm not serving, I'm not really a good Christian. Is there more at work there than just your, than just a, what you may think is a sense of, of serving? The gospel, what the gospel does is it calls us out of the badness of the things that we're involved with, things like alcohol abuse, like pornography, but it also calls us out of the quote-unquote good that we do that we think that will, will save us in the end, that will liberate us. If I do enough good works, uh, if, if I say enough good things, if I'm enough of a good guy, then, then God will have to accept me. So what this, what this provokes in us is a look at those things that we look to other than God to save us, that we need in our own stories of the Exodus a liberator who will continually save us. Now, it's tough because um, as Christians, we, we often think that God came to save us once, right? When we were saved as, as, as Christians, when we professed our, our faith in Christ, whether publicly or privately, we made that declaration. And a lot of Christians think it's sort of a one-time deal, but that's not the case at all. That God will continually, in your life, in my life, he will continually orchestrate the circumstances in your life to bring about ongoing freedom and restoration. That you were made to be fully human, and to be fully human means to be free, free to love God, free to love each other, that we were made for freedom. Um, what does this look like? Um, th- th- this, may, this may feel a bit like a cloud and some things may have been kicked up in the midst of me saying all this. I'll just share a personal story of what this, looks, what this has looked like for me. Um, again, as I mentioned, when I first heard the idea of idolatry and addiction, it was, it was an interesting category, but sort of a new category to think in um, and not clear how to get my head around that. Well, as you know, the last class I wasn't able to teach because of the whole boxing thing. And it's kind of cool to say that you box, whatever. I mean, you, you, know, you feel, you feel kind of cool about yourself. And to be honest with you, I like to tell people I box. It's sort of an ego thing that comes out for me. Um, <laughs> but when it happened, I was, um, I, man, I experienced a number of emotions. I, uh, I was sort of ashamed that that happened. 
and I, I was really struggling with a sense of guilt. I was ashamed what, what Frank would say when I told him this. I was really, I was sort of nervous what you all who had came to the last class, you would think of me. Um, and I was, I was sort of upset inside. And the fact that I couldn't really work or read or write for six weeks, man, that really messed me up because I didn't know what to do with myself. And like I said last week, I had, there were moments when all I could do was just sit at my kitchen table. I couldn't even think. And I really struggled through a lot of that. What I found in, in the midst of all of this was there, was there was an idolatry that was revealed that I love to be seen as the good, dependable, wonderful guy that comes through. Man, if you think that of me, God bless you because that's how I want you to think of me. <laughs> and that messed me up big time, that, I, that this, this was revealed in me as this happened, that if, if I'm not the guy that's seen as dependable, in fact, that was the characteristic that was given on my job review this past year. If there's one thing we can say about Chad, he's dependable, yes, but I can't be dependable to Frank and my church. These guys are going to think I'm a loser. I mean, this is, this is awful. God was using this really weird, unusual, seemingly random event to show in me, Chad, you, you put too much of your stock in this thing of being seen as dependable. And, and sometimes you can't come through. And sometimes that's okay. And you don't need to, to weigh yourself in on that. And so there were times with the Lord where I would just sit at the table and I couldn't even pray. I couldn't even read scripture. And that made me feel worthless. Why did I feel worthless? Because I was addicted to the idea and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a recovering addict of being seen as a dependable guy. I live a life of recovery. This is one of my addictions. Now, when we say something like that, right, when we say, well, I'm just so busy all the time, I'm just so busy, really? Or are you addicted to busyness? If you're not seen as being busy, do you feel worthless as a person? Well, if that's the case, you may have in yourself an addiction, and you've got to get into a recovery group. And if we think about sin more than just <coughs> managing of our behavior, but rather when you think about those people in your life or you've known that have struggled with alcoholism, man, you know it's life or death. You don't mess around with that. Do we treat our sin in the same fashion that my busyness, my need to feel dependable is just as serious as alcohol abuse? I'm an addict. I'm a recovering addict. And when you start to recognize that, you experience what Gerald May saw in those people in Alcoholics Anonymous, that we are all living a life of recovery and we all need grace. N.T. Wright says this, that we are called to be God's free and freedom-bringing people. We must learn to live as God's free people, giving up the habit of mind as physical state and learning the art of responsible free living. How do we do that? How do we experience freedom? Because we all, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really feel free all the time. We feel bound to things. We feel bound to certain relationships and interactions and work projects and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always feel in the depths of who we are that we're fully free, that we're fully who God has made us to be. Well, as I mentioned previously, one thing that I think can give us all a great cause for help is that by being on the way, by, by walking on the way, is that God has, is continually liberating us, that we can count on that because of his said, because of his loving kindness, that you can count on that one day, not fully in this lifetime, but one day you will be fully free to be who you were made to be, to love as you were made to love, to love God as you were made to love. And that... Grace itself, as Gerald May points out, is the most powerful force in the universe. This is pretty fascinating because May says in his book, Addiction and Grace, that even addictions in and of themselves lead to grace because addictions can't fully satisfy. 
That's really powerful, that even addictions themselves will point to grace. And so where do we start? We start with grace, and we start with the understanding uh, that God's heart for us is built out of love, and that the way that God loves us isn't just simply, you're now a Christian. It's that he's continually rescuing and liberating you out of your enslavement, out of your addiction, and that we get to participate in that as believers, that we get to participate in the co-rescue and labor of those out of enslavement, out of addiction. Let me read from you, uh, as we close tonight, uh, a verse from Isaiah that speaks about what Christ came to do when he came to earth. This speaks to the heart and the mission of Christ and that we are involved uh, in this beautiful role of uh, experiencing and participating in the ongoing liberation of humanity. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. That's what God is about in our lives and those that don't know him in our individual lives. So in closing, what I'd like to ask and, and propose that you consider thinking about is the first is, as you're interacting with God and those that you're close to in your life, is, is to ask the hard question, God, what are my addictions? What am I addicted to? What do I look for life and things outside of you? And, and some of us, God has given us victory. We've, we've overcome certain addictions, and that's, that's a beautiful thing, and we continually need to celebrate that, but also live in the reality that we're living a life of recovery. We're not fully free yet, and we won't be until we meet Christ, but to have a greater awareness of what are the addictions that are keeping me from experiencing more freedom, more liberation. And then the second question is this. How might God be using the events in your life right now that can feel like a wilderness, that can feel frustrating? How might he be using that to rescue you, to liberate you to a greater degree of freedom? Because God ultimately created us out of love for love. And so even the things that seemingly frustrate us and challenge us, God is using even those things to show us his his said, his loving kindness and how much he cares for us. Let me pray for us and then we'll... uh, We'll head on out. Thank you, guys. Father, we, um, we talked about a lot tonight, and uh, some of these things, some of these categories uh, we might find difficult, offensive, maybe just new, uh, or maybe it's just a reminder of, of where we're at. God, anything I've said, Lord, um, uh, God, I just pray that all that I've said here tonight, Lord, honors you, and that ultimately, Lord, that you will speak to everyone here, that you will bring about uh, a renewed sense of freedom, of liberation. God, that we were made to be free and made to love. And so open our hearts, open our eyes, open our eyes and hearts to things that we don't want to look at, that we don't want to to let go of, and help us to help each other experience more freedom. God, we pray all this in your name. Amen.